Hey everyone, this is Jason. A um, little bit of a weird episode this week or a weird start to the episode. Maybe you've seen the news, but last week about a hundred of my colleagues were laid off in a big restructuring at Vice Media. And unfortunately that includes almost the entire audio department that makes this show. We recorded this episode before the layoffs and we're currently trying to figure out how we're going to continue making this show with a much smaller staff. There's a lot of uncertainty right now, but our plan is to keep the show going, hopefully with no interruptions, but but we're a little TBD on that. So here's this week's episode, and hopefully we will have more for you next week and maybe a little more information about what's going on here. So we actually have some hopeful news this week. About 150 current and former workers who do content moderation for Facebook, TikTok, ChatGPT, and other social media networks are forming what they're calling the African Content Moderators Union. If you're not familiar with content moderation, these are the people who look at the worst stuff on the internet and make sure that it doesn't make it onto your news feeds. These are also some of the people who make sure that ChatGPT and other AI tools work. They clean data sets, flag offensive images, do a lot of data tagging, and for their efforts, they are rewarded with some of the lowest wages in the tech industry. Some of these people make less than $2 an hour. But the good news is that the African Content Moderators Union could change that, and it will allow these workers to band together to ask for more money and better working conditions. It's also a really good and visible sign of solidarity between workers who people don't usually think about and who do work that underpins so much of the technology that we use every day. Today, our guest is anthropologist Mary L. Gray, who's been studying the type of labor these workers do. It's what she calls ghost work, and that's the title of a book she wrote with co-author Siddharth Suri after a five-year study into this way of working. I interviewed Dr. Gray a couple weeks ago before this news came out. We talked about this new workforce and what it can mean for the future of not only technology, but of work itself. From Vice News, I'm Jason Kebler, and this is Motherboard Money. Welcome, Dr. Gray. How are you? Thanks for having me, Jason. Please feel free to call me Mary. So I think we're going to get into the weeds here on sort of this under, it's not quite underground, but this unseen economy and its implications for people all over the world. But I guess to, to back up, you and your co-author Siddharth Suri coined the term ghost work. So can you just first explain like why this term and what does it mean? I think the odd thing about this world of temporary work is there isn't one name for it. Some people called the people doing this work click workers. They called them micro workers. They called them crowd workers. Probably... For me, the most important term is worker. <laughs> we weren't calling the work itself ghost work. We're referring to work that is presented to a consumer, in most cases, as automated 
were completely done through computer programming that at some point had legions of people involved in preparing it for the computational magic, if you will, of being able to make it seem automated. So the phrase itself was meant to describe what happens when we erase the value, the very humanness of people's participation in preparing data. We wanted to capture the sense of the the ghostliness, the ephemerality of this contract work. Could you give me an example or two of a task? Yeah. So my favorite is a task that workers call dollars for dick pics. Can I say that on this podcast, I assume? You can say anything you want. Excellent. So <laughs> dollars for dick pics was the, um, was the joking way of labeling being shown different body parts. So people were paid to look at pictures that could be a penis or it could be a gardening hose. They were trained to be able to label what's the gardening hose and what's the dick. And so that's a very good example of a task that is absolutely necessary, um, very hard for computation to get right because it's, it's, it means nothing to a computer. It's, it's just geometry. A computer just doesn't it's, know what a dick looks like until a human tells no, them. <laughs> exactly. And it's sad to say that's a lot of work that needs to be done on the internet because there are a lot of images of what might be a penis um, floating around the internet. <laughs> That's an excellent example. <laughs> so there was a new study that came out. We're recording this end of March. Uh, it was a preprint study, so not peer-reviewed. I don't want to put too much stock into it, but they basically asked MTurk workers, who are humans on Amazon's MTurk platform, to do some tasks, and then they asked ChatGPT to do the same tasks. And the outcome of this study, which again, still needs to be peer-reviewed, is that ChatGPT did it more accurately than the workers did and at a much lower cost. And whether or not this specific study turns out to work or not, it's like the goal is and always has been for many of these companies to basically use workers to train AI that will then replace these workers and I guess I'm just wondering, like, philosophically, how do you think about that? What, like, do you think that that is what's happening here? Like, that, that seems to be the end goal to me, where it's like, we're going to pay you pennies, you're going to train these robots, and then the robots are going to replace you. Like, where does that leave us as a society, <laughs> I guess? I mean, so, you know, the hardest part is there's a full range of motivations in the mix here. There are folks building these systems who absolutely are aiming to automate every bit of human labor they can, and they believe that's possible. And then there are folks who genuinely want these kinds of tools to be supplemental, to be augmentation to, to another worker's work. Studying this world, the thing that really stood out to me, as much as we can automate easy tasks at some point after a lot of training on people modeling that task, we end up with an entirely new set of startups and efforts that keep a person in the loop. It turns out anything that requires the two categories that are hardest for artificial intelligence, creative, spontaneous reaction, because you have nothing to learn on, and communication, where there's a kind of complexity, will be hard for AI 
Philosophically, I believe that's true. Empirically, we know that's true. If you look at what we have been able to automate, all of it depends on human participation in providing ground truth. As much as we might believe, and I think particularly for the engineering folks who work on these systems, believe that humans can be pushed out of the loop, what they end up building is a different place for people to sit in that loop. Right. That that makes sense. And I think that's a I think that's an important point. And I guess just on this specific topic, I wanted to bring up one example because I, I have not been super impressed by chat GPT in particular. It's like it's spit out wrong information, misinformation, gotten confused. But in my day-to-day work as a journalist, I've noticed what I would consider to be AI to be creeping into a lot of the tools that I use. And in some ways, I found them to be incredibly useful. And one example of that is we make TikTok videos. Like we we write articles, but we also have a TikTok. And something that I've noticed that has gotten extremely good, like before my very eyes, because I've been doing this a long time, is uh, captions, like subtitles. And this is something that at Vice, we used to, like, I used to have to type those out myself, and it is incredibly time-consuming work. I would imagine that there was tons of transcription gigs on platforms like MTurk, and maybe there still are. And I used AI transcription service, like, a couple years ago, and I was like, wow, this is really bad. Like, the, the AI can't understand what I'm saying. And now, it's very good. Like, it, it very rarely gets words wrong. And to be completely honest with you, it saves me like hours and hours and hours of time. But it's also allowed us to just like do more work, kind of. Like it hasn't yeah. resulted in fewer fewer jobs at Vice. It's just resulted in like more output. Um, right, right. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't even have a question there. I'm just curious. Like what? Like what do you think of of that? <laughs> I, I have a book for you. It's called More Work for Mother. <laughs> It's a fantastic history of the introduction of household appliances. And the narrative, the story we always tell about introducing technologies is that it's going to save us time. It's going to make life easier. We have ample examples of how often the introduction of technology shifts our attention to other things we spend time on. So yes, captioning and translation has gotten so much more sophisticated. As much as that can be automated, we now expect to see some really good captioning, right? We expect that not only can it cover one language, that you would be able to do that in multiple languages. We have entire languages we haven't learned to caption yet. So you could say, you know, gosh, at some point, all of this, the other word for this kind of work is data enrichment. All of this data enrichment will be done. Again, every introduction of technology draws our attention to what else could we be trying to do? What else could we be trying to automate? The thing it will always miss, and I think this is so important, the thing it will always miss is the dynamic spontaneity that is the thing that makes our conversations, our interactions interesting. So for all of our worry that this is going to displace or replace humans, the bigger worry is that it's not going to do that. We're, we're really hitting the hard limit 
of what can be automated here, precisely because we're at the edge of what is it that makes us human when we interact, what makes us want to talk with each other. And as long as serving each other is the most important work we do as humans, AI won't replace us, but it could very well distract us from seeing how valuable that work is because we're just going to keep striving to get people out of the loop doing it without recognizing they're just, they're still there. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A big part of your book, and I think something that we really do try to focus on at Motherboard, is the labor aspect, the worker aspect, the human aspect of this. And that's something that I liked so much about the book is they're doing ghost work, but they are not ghost workers. They are people who are doing a job and they have new and different problems with their bosses. Sometimes their bosses are algorithms or sometimes their bosses are just like broken websites that kick them off uh, here or there. And I, I guess I just wanted to, like, obviously people who work in this industry are not a monolith, but like broadly speaking, like what types of people are taking these sorts of jobs? So most of what defines this workforce is that they are all people striving for three things. They were folks who needed to control when they worked. They wanted to control what they worked on. And they wanted to control who they worked with. Those were the three things that were drawing them to this world of work. 
So there were folks who were new parents who were stepping out of the labor market because they were caring for their children, and this was the kind of work they could do at night. There were folks who, we call them always on, who had found effectively four or five platforms where they could do this kind of data labeling, data enrichment work, and they had figured out how to make this function as an income stream. So if I'm a worker who works on one of these platforms, what does my day look like? Oh my goodness, it can be all over the map. So depending on the kind of worker you are, so if you're someone who's very serious about this work and you're depending on this as an income, it means from the moment you wake up, you are scanning constantly. A lot of people will spend two or three hours just in this hypervigilant state of grabbing any task they can see that that comes on the board. So think of it as a giant job board that's just constantly populating with new jobs you might be able to grab. And once you've spent time unpaid reviewing what's that job going to entail, you sign up to do that task, do it, and turn it back in. And it was really pretty typical for people to have a schedule they maintain. So they had an idea of when the tasks they like to do came onto a platform. They could schedule their day typically around their other work schedule, which almost always entailed family care. And working into the night, especially if they're in the global south, they are effectively time shifting to U.S. and EU markets that are putting these tasks online. So they could be working easily until two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, depending on what kinds of tasks they're doing. I think a lot of the most famous examples of this type of work are often, like we were talking about, content moderation, transcription, that sort of thing. And a lot of this work is done by people in countries like India, Bangladesh, Kenya, Latin America. You know, there are people in the United States and Europe who do this sort of work, but I guess is the majority of people who are doing this work, do they live in the global South? And is that because it's hard, it's hard to make ends meet if you live in New York City and are doing this sort of work, whereas it might not be as hard to do if you're living in Jakarta or something? It's absolutely a global workforce. I think there's two things going on here. One is absolutely following the pattern of outsourcing. So there is a substantial amount of this work that's happening in the global south. I would add the Philippines to that list all across the African continent. But the the second thing that's happening that's actually quite familiar to anybody in business, it's localization. If I'm trying to create a product and I need it to be relevant, culturally resonant, then I have to have folks familiar with that material or a location. There's no way to have the global social media world we have without a lot of people from different backgrounds evaluating what kind of material is this? Is this hate speech in Gujarati? It's like you you really have to have such context. The biggest problem is that we're not taking seriously that particularly for content moderation, this is a profession. They're there to look at what's coursing through the internet and say, wow, that needs to come down, or there's something wrong with that, or this is important, this needs to be said. And we're not valuing that work. Why? Because consumers are not aware of how reliant we are on content moderators to give us a digestible internet experience. 
And we're only now coming to realize these are not fly-by-night positions that'll be automated away any day. They're actually some of the hardest kinds of data work to automate. So we, we have not created the work conditions that recognize that yet. And on that note, like I wanted to ask, like these workers are doing such a valuable job for not just society, but specifically for many different companies. And I think just to, to, to make this like concrete, it's like OpenAI has contracted with various contract platforms in the global south. A good example is um, this company in Kenya where people are getting paid $2 an hour to sort of moderate and refine the outputs that ChatGPT is giving to people. And it's like, OpenAI is worth billions of dollars increasing every day. It's like they have these huge contracts with Microsoft. It's like pick a startup. Many of these startups are have been built on the backs of hundreds or thousands of people working for a couple dollars a day, a couple dollars a task, maybe less than that. And I guess my question to you is like, do you think that these workers are being compensated fairly like they're not enjoying sort of the (laughs) fruits of this massive wealth creation that they're participating in right no they're not being they're not being compensated fairly nor do they have healthy work conditions so i think you know the conclusion of the book really draws out a comparison actually to, to food caring for the person who's farming your food is the best way to get quality food. We, we know that, right? The same is true of information that we digest online. If we don't know not only who had a hand in training data, and especially if we hear words or phrases like fine-tuning or post-processing, that's all human labor going into looking at the production, the output of a model. We are at a point where collectively, government, public, private sector, and workers have a vested interest in saying this is, this is not going to be a good work condition if left to markets. This is the future of work. So what do we want our work lives to look like? And when we take seriously that this is not work that's going to go away, when we really challenge the very premise that that somehow all of this can be done without people, then we'll start pushing ourselves to say, like, absolutely not, that's not a fair wage. What global regulatory regimes do we have in place for responsible sourcing? So that just like your food, you know exactly where it came from and know the work conditions of the person who produced it. Because until we can answer that question, until we can say, where did the data come from? Who had a handle in it? And what were their work conditions for producing the quality of information that we're digesting. We are failing, not just as consumers, not just as businesses, but as society. That's that's a social failure, not to recognize the value of this work. And that's the subtitle of the book, which is maybe a good place <laughs> yes. to wrap it up, but it's How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. And it's a, it's like, that is what we are sort of threatening to build here if we don't build in those regulations or protections for workers and we don't honor them as humans and as workers and as talented workers as well. Yes. 
and and we can't do it soon enough and we can't oh it's such an odd time to feel like the value of these moments of human contribution that make or break a model are treated as so secondary to the the mathematical you know windstorm that becomes the thing that pops out of, of any of these models. And if we can just hold on to, the models can be fantastic. This could be very good. It will be very bad if this becomes yet another rolling out of the internet where some people have it and some people don't. And even worse, that there are people who are so fundamental to it functioning, who are treated like copy paper and thrown away. It's It takes it takes just an incredible amount of people contributing a little bit of their time along the way. And we don't have yet a system in place that recognizes the value of that way of working. I mean, I think it's really important to take away, this isn't a specific niche job or even a specific company. It's more a matter of what's the orientation to work? Like, how is ghost work effectively the taskification, the dismantling of full-time employment? And so listening to how do they make this work is very important. So we have work to do. People, we have work to do because we are at the very beginning of this, this shift. This does not have to be awful. It will be awful if we don't start treating it seriously as the next wave of how we work. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. You've given us a lot to think about. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much. This is Dr. Mary L. Gray, the co-author of Ghost Work. If you found this conversation fascinating, you should definitely read the book. I highly recommend it. Thank you, Jason. I have spent a lot of time thinking about the future of work and the AI revolution. This is something that we talk about and write about every single day. But I think one really important thing that Mary raised was the idea that the goalposts are always shifting. It's like, we'll automate one task, but other jobs pop up as a result of that. I don't know. Every single tool that I've seen so far has enabled humans to work differently, but I don't think that we've seen sort of the mass unemployment that people are really worried about with AI. I think the thing that we need to be really worried about are things like worker protections and making sure that just because AI is making work more efficient doesn't mean that every single worker is just asked for more and more and more and more and more. And traditionally, the thing that we need to really worry about is how the wealth that's generated by machines is distributing its way through society. Because I think there's a real huge risk that we're going to make inequality worse while the developers of AI are getting richer and richer. People who train it are getting poorer and poorer. You know, you have companies like OpenAI that are worth billions and billions of dollars, and you have these workers who are making only a couple dollars an hour. That's sort of the story of technology thus far. And I think that that's something that should worry a lot of people. So yeah, I mean, anyone who says that they know where this is going is lying, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking about it. 
Thanks for listening. That's it for this week, and we will hopefully see you next week. So as I mentioned at the top, a lot of my colleagues who help make Motherboard money, the editors, producers, sound designers, were laid off by Vice over the last week. So I wanted to personally thank all of them for making this show. Uh, It's been an amazing experience. I've made a lot of podcasts in my time at Vice, and the wonderful people whose names you're about to hear have done such a great job. I am eternally grateful for their work on the show, helping me envision it and record it and edit it and produce it and make something that we're all really proud of. If you are making a podcast or radio show, you should get in touch because I know some really good podcast producers who might be looking for work. So this week's credits, Motherboard Money is hosted by me, Jason Kebler. It's produced by Sophie Kazis and Sheena Ozaki. Our senior producer is Julia Nutter. Our supervising producer is Ashley Cleek. Emmanuel Mayberg is Motherboard's executive editor. Music and sound design by Pran Bandy. Special thanks to Chloe Zhang, Jordan Pearson, and Janice Rose for leading Motherboard's AI coverage over the years. Fact-checking by Sophie Hurwitz. Our senior production manager is Janet Lee, and Charles Raggio is the VP of Vice Audio. If you liked today's episode, please share with a friend. Also, rate, review, and subscribe. And again, get in touch if you want to meet any of the wonderful people I just mentioned. You can also find more stories like this at motherboard.vice.com. Motherboard.